Good evening to each one of you. I trust that the Lord has been good to you since we last saw each other. It, I count it a real honor to be invited back to this uh, special place uh, for another year. We had a great time last year, and I consider this one of my favorite places that I get to come to around the United States. So I thank you for that invitation and the opportunity to spend a weekend with you before we go on to places like Oklahoma and Tennessee and places like that where we hope, we hope, the tornadoes are all finished. But we trust the Lord on things like that, don't we? Tonight, I'm going to begin by sharing with you an editorial that I came across from the Adventist Review over 30 years ago. It is one of the most powerful editorials that I have come across, and I'm going to share most of, you, most of it to, with you as the editor wrote it. Perhaps the most serious danger that threatens the church is that it will lose its uniqueness, that it will become like the world around it, that its schools, its medical institutions, its methods of promotion, its literature, its standards of measuring success will be scarcely distinguishable from those of the secular world. Yet few people in the church seem concerned about this danger. Too many measure success merely by gains in tithe and membership. They are confident that all is well with our educational institutions so long as enrollments are increasing and accrediting bodies are pleased. They seem satisfied with our hospitals so long as their bed occupancy rate is high and their budgets are balanced. They are content with our literature so long as it sells well and is appreciated by readers. When anyone raises questions as to whether spiritual values are being given sufficient emphasis, whether our literature is distinctively Adventist, or whether an institution is being operated in harmony with God's revealed will, often he is considered a negative influence, a fanatic. Few people in the church welcome criticism even though it be constructive. Most would rather be told that everything is going well, that conditions may not be perfect, but they are the best they have ever been. It is important to keep in mind that the church may operate institutions that meet worldly standards, but not God's standards. The church may give the appearance of being enormously successful and still be a failure. Burgeoning financial and membership statistics may be accompanied by a sharp decline in spirituality. Employees in denominational institutions may be efficient, but not spiritual. Some time ago, we were startled by several passages in a book entitled Keys to the Deeper Life by A.W. Tozer, a consecrated non-Adventist Christian. In the book, the author declared, the separating line between the church and the world has been all but obliterated. Aside from a few of the grosser sins, the sins of the unregenerated world are now approved by a shocking number of professedly born-again Christians and copied eagerly. Young Christians take as their models the rankest kind of worldlings and try to be as much like them as possible. Religious leaders have adopted the techniques of the advertisers. Boasting, baiting, and shameless exaggerating are now carried on as a normal procedure in church work. The moral climate is not that of the New Testament, but that of Hollywood and Broadway. Most evangelicals no longer initiate, they imitate, and the world is their model. End of quote. The editor said, is this indictment too harsh? We think not. 
Too many Christians are aping the world in appearance and conduct. They imitate rather than initiate. They bring secular techniques into the church to carry forward the work of God. Perhaps Mr. Tozer described Laodicea best when he said, and this is the most important segment right here, religious work can be done by natural men without the gifts of the Spirit, and it can be done well and skillfully. But work designed for eternity can only be done by the eternal Spirit. No work has eternity in it unless it is done by the Spirit through gifts he has himself implanted in the souls of redeemed men. Spiritually gifted persons are ominously few among us. When we so desperately need leaders with the gift of discernment, for instance, we do not have them and are compelled to fall back upon the techniques of the world. This frightening hour calls aloud for men with the gift of prophetic insight. Instead, we have men who conduct surveys, polls, and panel discussions. Again, end of quote. And the editor asked, Can religious work be done skillfully and well by natural men? Yes. Physicians can treat diseases. Surgeons can perform operations. Teachers can teach. Promoters can promote. Pressmen can run presses. Nurses can care for the sick. Secretaries can manage offices. Editors can edit. Layout artists can create clever designs for magazines. Administrators can manage and direct. Treasurers can handle finances, and on and on. All of these activities may be carried forward by natural men. And that is the key point of this editorial. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, would you? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. page myself, folks. This editor was Kenneth Wood. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that the desperate need of us today, to have the mind of Christ? We can either be natural men and women, meaning using our best abilities and talents, those gifts which God has given us to run an effective work, or we can be spiritual men and women, using the gifts of the Holy Spirit, directly guiding our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Both cases, the work can be done, you see. In both cases, the work can be done. But which will be the work for eternity? The editor wasn't quite through with his editorial. 
He said, the natural man sees no necessity for yielding to and following implicitly the counsel from God's Spirit, as set forth in the Bible and the writings of Ellen White. The natural man sees no great danger in deviating slightly from the expressed will of God. By contrast, the spiritual man distrusts self and seeks earnestly to do God's work in God's way. Thus, if natural men are in positions of leadership in God's work, the church is in peril. What then is one need of Laodicea? That all leaders, all workers, all employees of the remnant church shall be spiritual men, not natural men. Wrote Ellen White, to our ministers, physicians, teachers, and all others engaged in any line of service for the Master, I have a message to bear. The Lord bids you to come up higher, to reach a holier standard. You must have an experience much deeper than you have ever yet thought of having. Be zealous and repent, the angel tells us. What will be our response? Will we continue to excuse our deficiencies and proclaim our lack of any need, or will we repent? While we make up our minds, Jesus stands at the door and waits. A powerful editorial, in my opinion, addressing particularly the issues at stake in our beloved church today. Yes, we can do a marvelous work as natural men and women. We can be trained well. We can be efficient. We can do the things that any goal-setting person can accomplish. But can we be spiritual men and women? Now, last year, I talked a fair amount about the goals of Adventism, the purpose of Adventism, the mission of Adventism, the high ideal that God has set for his people. I talked a lot about the what last year, what God wants. Tonight, I want to talk about the how because the what isn't much without the how. If we don't know how to achieve what God has set, then we flounder, we become discouraged, and perhaps we even abandon that marvelous message for a message which might sound a little more practical and workable. So tonight is the practical part of what I want to tell you. How can we have this experience that we so desperately need? There are three principles that I wish to share with you tonight three basic principles on how we can be spiritual men and women, how we can have victory over sin. The first one comes from a time back in my childhood where a friend of mine wrote up a little story, and I think you'll enjoy it. Even though we were all too young to drive, we found the car to be in too, too enticing to leave alone. Tom's dad had gotten it for him, a 1930 Chevrolet coupe with a jackrabbit clutch, to keep him under the hood and out of mischief until he was legally licensed to drive it on the roads. But when my brother Larry and I got together with our boyhood buddy Tom, there wasn't much that could keep us out of, uh, out of mischief. And though we hardly knew which end of the wrench to hold, we managed one idle Sunday afternoon to bring the old Chevy to life. That sturdy cast iron blue flame six snorted and popped, then settled into a smooth rumble that shot fire into our blood. We literally danced around the open hood, thumping each other on the back and grinning an unspoken agreement that we would not shut it off until we felt its power from behind the wheel. We eyed Tom's long gravel driveway and the plan went into action. Tom, of course, had first dibs on the driver's seat. His neighbor jumped in next to him. Larry and I took up stations on the running boards. Tom found reverse and scattering gravel against the rear fenders bolted down the driveway backwards. We took turns behind the wheel, one trip down the drive in reverse, then returning in low gear. 
As we became more bold, we graduated to second gear halfway up the drive. By late afternoon, this straight-line reciprocal travel was losing its thrill, and we concluded that since Tom lived off a country road, it would be safe to back out onto the pavement and practice turning corners into the driveway. Each trip took us further down the road with faster turns into the driveway, and we found that the best passenger ride was enjoyed on the running boards. On the fateful last ride. You did know that was coming up, didn't you? On the fateful last ride. Tom's neighbor was behind the wheel, determined to outdo the rest of us in negotiating a high-speed, 90-degree turn up the gravel drive. Tom and Larry rode the right running board so they could catch the full thrill of a sharp left turn. I took the safest spot on the left running board. But neighbor overdid it. As the Chevy careened around the corner, almost swiping the fence on the right side of the car, Tom and Larry leaped off the running board over the fence and rolled through the cow pasture. From my safe position on the inside of the curve, I roared with laughter at their plight, but only for a second. Neighbor overcorrected his turn and plowed into the fence on my side of the car. My hip did contest with a large fence post, and though the post broke off at the ground, it knocked me off the running board and my ankle went under the rear wheel. As the dust began to settle, I noticed that everybody was running. Tom's dad was out of the house across the porch and headed down the steps. Tom, neighbor, and Larry got to me first. Pretend you're not hurt, they pleaded in loud whispers, or we'll really get in trouble. Too stunned yet to know what was happening, I was eager to comply. Try to walk, they urged. Tom's dad looks really mad. I tried to get up and walk, but there was something about my left ankle that wouldn't support me. Hurry up, they pleaded. He's almost here. Boy, we're in trouble. I finally got a look at my ankle. It was turned inward at a right angle. Because the pain hadn't hit me yet, I laughed. Here are these three fellows worried about getting in trouble with Tom's dad when the trouble is with my ankle. The ludicrous humor of the situation has amused us all in the years since the event, but it is only recently that I've begun to see it in a broader insight. None of us needed to fear the anger of Tom's dad. We needed to fear the destructive results of our own stupidity. And Tom's dad, with his years of experience and mature judgment, could have helped us avoid doing something so foolish. My mind recalls the years I have spent worrying that when I break God's law, the problem is that I'm in trouble with the lawgiver. Our picture of God is still so much like what we thought of Tom's dad, leaping across the porch and down the steps. Ignoring the pain and grief we have brought on ourselves, we tremble in fear at the anticipated anger we are sure he will unleash on us. We even try pretending, make-believing, bluffing that we're not hurting, hoping that our bravado will diminish the wrath to come. But we are so sure that the problem with sin is that it upsets the lawgiver that we fail to see the pain it has caused us. We do not see that God is coming not to get us in trouble, but because we are already in trouble. He comes not to chastise, but to rescue For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And when he comes close to us, we fail to see the tears in his eyes. 
the lesson there, the first principle, the first thing we need to understand if we're going to make any headway in this at all, God is not demanding victory over sin to see if we will somehow measure up, that we will meet his expectations. He is promising victory over sin so we don't break our spiritual ankles so often. I think we need to see that picture. Not what God is demanding, but what he is promising. God is on our side. If we don't have that one clear, my friends, it's not going to work. If we don't have the picture that God is right there, even when we slip and, go, and fall in the mud and get all messed up, if we don't have the picture that God is there to rescue us, not to beat us over the head and berate us, if we don't have the picture of a loving, seeking, forgiving God, we are not going to succeed in any kind of victorious Christian living. So that is so basic. God is on our side. He's with us. He's there to help us not to make it harder for us. Principle number one, God is on our side. Principle number two, drifting off course is one of the easiest things in the world to do. You don't have to exercise any power of any kind. You just kind of go with the flow. Wherever life seems to be taking you, you just take advantage of that opportunity and you just move ahead with the flow. Drifting may be one of the most dangerous things that affects any born-again Christian because the fires are high for a while and we have a marvelous walk with the Lord and we're praying and we're studying the Bible and then all of a sudden life begins to take over. You know, studies and work and activities and friends and responsibilities and the older you get the more responsibilities there are and life just crowds out that fire and that excitement and that burning desire gradually and drift begins to set in as we begin to just kind of go with where everyone else around us is going and it just kind of it just kind of seeps into our bones I came across this little story that I thought uh, you would appreciate one winter, a bird was seen on a piece of wood floating down the river toward Niagara Falls. It was evidently enjoying the movement of the swiftly gliding stream. It had no sense of danger. Why should it be afraid? Didn't it have wings? Couldn't it just fly off when the point of danger was reached? So it thought, as it rested free from care on the piece of wood which carried it down near the dizzy edge. When it reached the point of danger, it tried to soar from the wood, but alas, it could not. The river's mist had frozen upon its wings, and so it miserably perished as the waters plunged over. Don't we all kind of have the idea, well, I'm kind of not where I should be right now, but I can get out of it later. I'm young. Uh, you know, I got a lifetime ahead of me. Uh, I can jump off this boat at any time I want to. Uh, we get that feeling of complacency. We know it isn't quite the way it should be, but we'll have time to turn it around. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. We're okay right now. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and sometimes we forget some things we should remember. Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. 
For the word, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Letting things slip. Isn't that the easiest thing in the world to do? Not rebelling, not going off and challenging God, but just letting it slip away, neglecting. Neglecting that time for prayer, neglecting that time in thoughtful communion with God, just letting it slip away. If there was anything that Jesus had to say a lot about, it was just allowing things to just let you take you where it will. It was just go wherever the, wherever the flow is going. Jesus made some strong statements about making decisions. So the second principle, don't allow yourself to drift into apathy. If you feel drift beginning to come in your life, fight it because you will need to fight that. That is one thing that God won't do automatically for us. He won't decide what we think about and what our priorities are. That is our decision. He will not invade our free choice. And so we have to make a conscious effort to say no to drift when drift seems to be carrying us in the wrong way. Drifting, perhaps the most dangerous thing that can happen to born-again Christians. Principle number three. This comes from a former student of mine who is now a pastor of a church up in Central California at Pacific Union College when he was the uh, writing for our campus chronicle up there. He wrote this little story. A tall figure opens my door, walks in and plops himself in the yellow beanbag by the dorm window. How's it going for you? Fine. His voice is uncertain. I lean back on my chair and tilt my head, expecting him to continue. Instead, he picks at a patch in the beanbag. You're not sure, are you? Well, what do I do, he says. There's something in my life that I want to stop. I've asked God, but when the temptation comes, I just can't stop myself. Everything is fine until the temptation comes. Do you spend time with God in the morning? Yes, but that doesn't keep me from falling. You mean you pray and study your Bible and still have trouble? Yes. What would you tell him? Obviously, there is no lack of power on God's part. God speaks and land erupts from water. He opens his mouth and stars flash into existence. Uh, the obvious problem is me. Must I try harder? Not again. Not more agony laced only with defeat. I can't bear the thought of exerting more of my own strength to try to resist temptation. But there is hope. That hope lies in a misunderstood word long kicked around by theologians. The will. Our will is like the final switch which ignites the space shuttle Challenger's three main engines. In seconds, nearly 1.1 million pounds of thrust is scorching the launch pad. The 18-story craft, four and a half million pounds, breaks away from the launch tower and heaves itself into the sky. Two solid fuel rockets ignite moments later with five times the power of the other engines. Within minutes, the craft is traveling so fast, it would take us from Angwin to Los Angeles in 106 seconds. Deadly, explosive power, all started by a human hand, a weak hand, flipping an insignificant switch. Often we lock ourselves in castles built of old habits and fears. We dig a moat and make a drawbridge. Too often, instead of letting go of the rope and lowering the bridge, we hang on for dear life, all the while saying, Come in, Prince Jesus, take this castle. But we haven't chosen to let the bridge down. 
Our lives at temptation often seem like a dark room with ogres of the past screaming from closets, doors just ajar. The darkness is as black as sin and thunders on the brain like waves on the shore. Everything seems lost and hopeless. The dark power is winning until we remember the power. Though hidden from view, it snakes through the walls with spider-like tendrils. Yet its nearness doesn't bring light. We must do a human action to join the globe on the ceiling with the power in the wall. We must flick the switch. Faith believes in the power. The, wi the will flips the switch. And the power in the walls causes light to flash from the globe. Closets close and ogres squelch their screams. Light and peace result. The battle is over. I shared what I had found out about the will with the figure slouched in the yellow bean bag. He hadn't tried that. Yes, that was it. Of course that was it. He knew it would work. Thanks, he said as he left my room. I watched him walk down the hall. There was a spring in his step. Principle number three, my friends. Everything, and I mean everything, about being a spiritual man and woman, about stopping drifting, about victory over sin. Everything centers in the will. That is not willpower. There is a huge distinction between the will and willpower. Will, the will, is a choice to plug in to the power that we do not have. And we're going to spend the rest of tonight talking about principle number three, the principle of the will. And we're going to take it directly from God speaking to us through the pen of his servant. The first one is Messages to Young People, pages 151 to 154. The will is the governing power in the nature of man, bringing all the other faculties under its sway. The will is not the taste or the inclination. Let's be very clear on that. The will, the taste, you see, is what we like. We all have different tastes, different kinds of music, different things, different clothes. Everything, every one of us have different tastes. And we have different inclinations born into us by heredity. Our fallen natures are all over the place. And our natures pull us toward this and pull us toward that. The will is not the taste or the inclination, but it is the deciding power. Do we realize that nothing happens in our lives without the will okaying it? The inclination doesn't make things happen. The tastes don't make things happen. They just push, they push, they push, and the will decides what will happen. There is not one thing we say, not one thing we do, that is not the governing power of the will to make happen. It will not happen in our lives, good or bad, without the will entering the picture. And she says, you will be in constant peril until you understand the true force of the will. You may believe and promise all things. Have we done a little bit of that? I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he has accepted me. I believe that he has forgiven my sins. And I promise to obey. We've done it, haven't we? And what has happened to those promises? They have just kind of gone flat, haven't they? The air out of the balloon. Because something has gone wrong. You may believe and promise all things. But your promises or your faith are of no value. Now that's a pretty strong statement. Your promises, I will do your will, God. I will keep the Sabbath. I will return tithe. Your promises and your faith, I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. I believe I can have eternal life. 
are of no value until you put your will on the side of faith and action. No value until the will enters that picture. And then she says, believe although nothing seems true or real to you. May I offer a suggestion right now? When we've been face up with failure after failure after failure, we have made our commitment, we want to serve the Lord, we want to be on the right side of things, we want to be good witnesses, and it's gone down and down and down, and we've come to the point where, where it doesn't seem real anymore, this religion stuff, and especially Adventism with its high standards and its, its ideals of a last generation that will be totally victorious. Ah, where is it? Where is it? My friends, the churches I'm going to, myself, it's just not there. It is hopeless. I have no way. Nothing seems true or real. How much seemed true or real to Jesus Christ when he was on the cross? How much? Ellen White says, hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror. All the promises of before, thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up all seemed unbelievable to Jesus hanging on the cross because now he was separated from his father's face. He could not see his father. His prayers didn't get anywhere and he had no hope of eternal existence with his father. The word is hope. He had to make a decision. Do I go with my feelings? Do I go with my senses? Do I go with the evidence all around me? Do I go with what is real? or it seems real, or do I go with pure faith in what God has said when nothing seems real to me? You know which decision Jesus made, don't you? His last words on the cross, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, no matter what happens, even if I never see your face again. It's up to you, Father. I trust you. You take care. Believe although nothing seems true or real to you. That's the first point of getting the will involved. The will is not about what the evidence tells us. The will is about what God says and our faith in what God says. And we activate our life. You cannot control your impulses, your emotions, as you may desire. Are you very clear on that one, too? Emotions are up and down, aren't they? Hey, it's a great day today, and then 24 hours later, it's the worst day you've ever lived. He just didn't say what you thought he would say. She just didn't act the way she was supposed to act, and everything is down the drain. Life has gone. The air has gone out of life. You cannot control your impulses. Impulses, these things that were born into us in all kinds of ways, some very strong in one person for this, some very strong in another person for that. We're all different, but we all have strong impulses tending toward the wrong things. All of us do. You can't control those impulses. They're in you from birth until death. They won't go away. Watch this very carefully. Some are beginning to teach, even in Adventism, that these bad impulses will disappear magically at the close of probation. Not going to happen. They will not disappear until Jesus makes all things new. And these impulses are uncontrollable by any human abilities. You cannot control your impulses, your emotions, as you may desire, but you can control the will. 
Do we realize that's about all we've got left from the Garden of Eden? Do you realize that? I mean, look at our minds. They're little puny minds. We activate, what, a hundredth of our brain, brain cell abilities? Our bodies are in horrible shape. Our moral nature is, well, forget it. It's hopeless. About all we have from the Garden of Eden is the power to choose, the power to make a decision. Will. Not willpower. That got lost a long time ago. But the will, that's there. And Satan is not allowed to mess with it, and God won't interfere with your decision-making power. That's the untouchable part of every human being. Everything else can be touched and messed up. But the will, God has set a, a boundary about. You still have the right to choose. You can make decisions. Can't do much about it, but you can choose. By steadfastly keeping the will on the Lord's side, every emotion will be brought into captivity to the will of Jesus. How do we get those emotions in contr under control when they're up and down? Getting the will in captivity and then let God take care of the emotions. You must remember that your will is the spring of all your actions. Last year, if you remember, I said that sin is always an act of the will. Do you begin to see why I said that? You must remember that your will is the spring of all your actions. Sin is always a decision of the will. It's not an accident of birth. It's not something that just happens to us. The will makes the decision, I will or I won't do this. Always, every time, without fail. She says we should pray this prayer that Jesus wants us to pray to him. Yield yourself up to me. Give me that will. Take it from the control of Satan, and I will take possession of it. See, the first thing we've got to realize is that even though we've got will, it's messed up too. The fall has damaged it. The will isn't the way it was with Adam and Eve. It's still there, but it's been damaged, and the will doesn't operate too well anymore. So... Take it from the control of Satan, give it to Jesus Christ, and ask him to take possession of the will. Let's be really basic right now. Let's forget that we're sophisticated people on a university campus with either a higher education degree or moving toward a higher education degree. Let's just pretend that we don't know much of anything, which we really don't, folks. We're fooling ourselves most of the time. And let's just say... Maybe there's something very basic we need to do every morning that we wake up. Lord, I'm not doing too, will, too well with willpower, emotions, inclinations, impulses. But today I choose to take my will from Satan and give it to you. I'm entrusting my will to you today, Lord. You do what I can't do because I am giving you permission. That's the key thing, isn't it? I am giving you permission to control my thinking processes. I am giving you permission to move in my will to do what I could never do in my own power. I give you the right to my will. Have we gotten beyond that basic kind of thing in our thinking? Do we somehow think that we have a lot of knowledge and we know, we know the techniques and if we just pray and study the Bible, it'll all come into place? Are we forgetting that it's very, very basic at the bottom line? God doesn't really care how much we know, you see. He wants to know how much we... Trust, believe, and surrender to him. 
Give me, yield yourself to me. Give me that will. Take it from the control of Satan, and I will take possession of it. Why do we fool ourselves on that? You know why? Because we think we're making our own decisions. We have been led to believe from babyhood on up that we control our wills, that the decisions we make are our choices and nobody else's. We choose, and Satan loves that procedure because that means he can make choices and, we, and, and, and fool us into thinking we're making those choices. They're our choices. They're what we want to do. Here is what Satan says. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. Do your own thing. Now that's Satan talking to us. What is he saying? Don't let anybody tell you to follow God. Do my thing. And think you're doing your thing. That's all he wants. Because folks, again, let's realize down to basics, it's like Satan putting us at the oars of a boat while he sits back at the rudder. We think we're pulling that boat where we want it to go. And Satan is steering that thing just as good as he can. And we're just going right down his avenue. Again, let's be very honest. There are two powers in this world. We are not that power. There are powers way beyond anything. You know, the scientific method does, does just great in terms of helping us to deal with broken bones and, and diseases and viruses and how to treat things. But the scientific method doesn't tell us one thing about the truths that matter for death or for life. Two beings. Two beings. Controlling, directing, channeling their thoughts through us, and we say yes to one or the other of the two. That's all we can really do is say yes to one or the other of the two. When we say, I'm making my own decisions, I am the captain of my ship, I am the master of my destiny, we are the most foolish to see people that could ever walk the face of this earth. Because only when you can keep your heart beating are you the master of your own destiny. And as long as we are dependent on the power outside of ourselves for the most basic thing called breathing, only then do we realize that there are powers outside of us and we have to choose. We have to make that choice. In Adventist home, page 401, how do we, how do we give this will completely to Jesus Christ? You will all should guard the senses lest Satan can gain victory over them for these are the avenues of the soul, the senses, eyes, ears, touch, you will have to become a faithful sentinels over your eyes, ears, and all your senses if you would control your mind and prevent vain and corrupt thoughts from staining your soul. The power of grace alone can accomplish this most desirable work. How can we take that will away from Satan and put it into Christ's hands? How can you do it when the senses are being filled with Satan's suggestions? Satan's entertainment, Satan's reading material, Satan's music, Satan's this, Satan's that. Everything that Satan offers us, we're filling our minds with, and then we say, Lord, I give you my will. How does that work? It's utter hypocrisy. So there are some things we need to do if we're going to really give our will to Jesus Christ. And that is we're going to have to watch the things that come into our senses and guard, as Ellen White says, the avenues of the soul the avenues of the soul. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing 61 and 62. Our will is to be yielded to him that we may receive it again. Now, very careful here. 
God does not take our will and make us robots. God does not take our will and make our decisions for us. God does not take away that beautiful gift of free choice that we've all been given and make us simply pawns on a chessboard. Our will is to be yielded to him that we may receive it again purified and refined and so linked in sympathy with the divine that he can pour through us the tides of his love and power. All right, here's the procedure now. Lord, I take my will from Satan. He does not have the right to my will any longer. I give it into your hands. I give you permission. And he takes our will and he begins to work miracles in that will of ours that we didn't realize were possible to us. He refines it, he purifies it, and he starts pouring in his, it says, love and power. Power is no good without love. His love and power. And then she says, in order for us to reach this high ideal, that which causes the soul to stumble must be sacrificed. It is through the will that sin retains its hold upon us, not through an accident, not through friends, not through circumstances, but through the will. That's where sin holds on to us. The surrender of the will is represented as plucking out the eye or cutting off the hand. Was Jesus just using a stupid little illustration there? Or did he mean what he said? Often it seems to us, she says, that to surrender the will to God is to consent to go through life maimed or crippled. My friends, let me tell you, if you're going to get to this experience of a surrendered will, a will totally in the hands of Jesus Christ, it's not going to be easy. Because your will desperately wants to hold on to sin. Mine, yours, every human being's. We want to hold on to that which has become precious to us. It has become part of our lives. It has become so important to us that now, if we were to lose that for the rest of eternity, what point would there be in life? Life would lose its happiness. What point would there be to go on? To surrender the will is like plucking out the eye, Jesus said, or cutting off the hand we will be losing what we think is an essential part of us. When we say, I give you my will, this part of my life is gone, it's done forever if you will supply the power. We have to make that decision, you see. We can't just say, well, I want to do your will. That's not will. That's just a want. I want to do your will, but I still want to live this life over here. I want to have a little corner for myself. We give the Lord our entire will every bit of it. And we say, that part of my life disappears, I know, when I surrender my will to you. And if it has to take the cutting off of my hand or plucking out my eye, so be it, Lord, I go into heaven maimed and crippled. And let me tell you something. What seems like maiming and crippling turns into healing and restoration by God's grace. And all of a sudden, what seemed like a hopeless, disastrous decision we look back and we say, wow, did I think that was important? God can make the difference. E.J. Wagoner, a hundred years ago, said something to us that we need to hear. I know that one of the principal reasons why I did not, years before I did, realize the power of God to save from my own sinful disposition 
was simply my unwillingness to be saved from it. Why? Man loves his own. We were united to the flesh, and there were things that were such a part of this sinful flesh that you and I found sinful pleasure in that we could not conceive of happiness even in heaven apart from them. Is that the experience you've ever come in contact with? You could not imagine that there could be happiness apart from that sinful thing. We were willing to let everything else go, but not our darling sin. What joy would there be in life if that had to be taken away? When I talk to somebody about the joy of healthful living and point out certain things that tend directly to sensuality and lust and passion and disease, they say, what would be the use of living if we could not have any of these things? Did you ever hear people say that? No joy in life if this is to be taken away. Don't you see that this is only the perpetuation of the sin of Eve? When every tree of the garden, everything that was pleasant to the sight and good for food was given to her freely, and the Lord said, eat all you want of it and take it freely, then the devil fixed her mind on that one forbidden fruit and all the rest was lost sight of. She thought that if she did not have that one thing, she did not have anything to eat. What in the world could she live on? What was the use of living if she didn't have that one thing? That thought eclipsed everything else. The devil has perpetuated that blindness in human flesh, and he has made sin look so attractive to us that we have thought, must I be delivered from this? No, we don't put it that way, but must I be separated from that? We do not call it a deliverance, but must I have this thing taken away from me? Must I give it up? Now that is the way the gospel has often been preached. It has been a gospel of giving up, but instead it's a gospel of receiving. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has given up everything, and we are the ones who receive everything. People will say, we are not saved by works. No, but we are lost by works. And if you and I continue in works that are inimical to the Spirit of God, we shall drive the Spirit of God away and be lost. Therefore, our part is simply to give up and say that this wicked thing may be taken away from us. When we come to the matter of healthful living, we see it as not giving up this thing and that thing and the other thing, as though every joy of life had to be given up, but it is getting our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is getting our eyes fixed upon that which is spiritual and real and which is joy and seeing that the thing which he gives us is so much greater than our highest previous conception of pleasure that when we take them in God's way, we wonder how we ever have been satisfied to be ruled by the flesh. When we get hold of that, we have healthful living in mortal flesh and sinless lives in sinful flesh. And we shall glory in infirmities. We shall take pleasure even in temptations, in infirmities, that the power of God may rest upon us. I do not know, I cannot conceive, I cannot understand what joys there may be in the world to come, but I know this, that I could be perfectly content never to, hire, to know any higher joy than this, that Jesus gives us the experience of the power of Christ in sinful flesh to put underfoot and make subservient to his will this sinful flesh. It is the joy of victory, and there can be a shout in the camp when that is done. And when the flesh lusts and clamors for forbidden things, there will be a power there that can say, no, you can't do that. This is not theoretical. 
It is most intensely practical. It is the possession by the Spirit of God. You know what it is to be possessed of the devil. You've heard the expression possessed of the devil, haven't you? It is a sad fact that so little is the right thing known that we have to illustrate it by the error. We are a people for God's own possession, not simply a people that he calls his own and claims as his property, but the people whom he possesses, the people possessed by God. Don't we need that? We need to be possessed by God. Then we're going to have something different in our lives. I love this statement from Testimonies, Volume 5, 293, 294. Satan knows better than we do the limit of his power and how easily he can be overcome if we resist and face him. Through divine strength, the weakest saint is more than a match for him and all his angels. Do we realize that? Satan doesn't have the power you think he has. Satan doesn't have the power he thinks he has. Satan doesn't have the power the world thinks he has. He's a defeated foe. God has more power than Satan. And the weakest saint is more than a match for him and all his angels. Let's not get into this, who has, who's stronger. Let's have that settled once and for all. And I'm going to finish up tonight with the classic statement. I urge you to read this and study it carefully for yourselves. It is, of course, in the book Steps to Christ. They always are, aren't they? Page 47. Many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? That's our question tonight in one sentence. How can I surrender to God? You desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. There we are. There's a reality check. We've made the promises, and then they've just slipped through our fingers like sand. It hasn't worked out. You cannot control your thoughts your impulses, your affections. Let's get really clear on that. You cannot, cannot, not should not, must not, you cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. The knowledge of your broken promises and forfeited pledges weakens your confidence in your own sincerity and causes you to feel that God cannot accept you, but you need not despair, okay? Your knowledge of how many times you've broken your word is going to make you feel like it's hopeless. God can't accept me. I'm too far gone. But you need not despair. What you need to understand is the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision, of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. The power of God, of the power of choice God has given to men, it is theirs to exercise. You cannot change your heart. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections, but you can choose to serve him. You know what that's just said? You can't even love God. You cannot even love God without choosing first that you are going to serve him. You cannot of yourself give to God its affections. You can give him your will, he will then work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. You see, there's going to have to be a miracle here. We're not talking about procedures. We're not talking about techniques. There is one technique 
and one only, and that is to surrender your will to God and mean it. Other than that, it's not about techniques. It is about a miracle of God in our minds. It's a bigger miracle than raising Lazarus from the dead. You know, God can create new cells. God can create life where there was death. God can turn a leper into a whole person. God can heal blind eyes. That's pretty simple for God. What is even harder for God is to change the thinking patterns in my mind because it's all involved with free choice and heredity and tendencies and influences and impulses. And God has to work with all of that and not violate my free choice and still work a miracle in my thinking abilities. That's the biggest miracle there ever was. And that's the miracle of the new birth. And a whole lot of people haven't experienced the new birth. They have chosen to serve God. They have believed in Him. They have accepted Him as their Savior. They've been forgiven of their sins, but they haven't experienced the the miracle-working power of God in the mind. And so there's failure after failure after failure after failure. The miracle-working of power of God is a miracle of God. Let's never forget that. The change that has to take place in my mind. What I can do is give God permission that's about the extent. And then I can shut out some voices around me where Satan is speaking to me. I can do some of those things. But I can't. We might be able to quit smoking, quit drinking, just by willpower alone. Some people can do it. They throw them away and they're done. But there's never any way that we will ever be able to stop being selfish, irritable, prone to self-pity, by any willpower known to human beings. That is beyond us. That is going to take a miracle of God. And then I love this one from Christ's Object Lessons 3.12. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The, The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. I hear a lot about being clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness. Believe in him and he clothes you with righteousness. That's only the beginning stage. The real clothing is when we live his life. Our thoughts are in captivity to him. The mind is one with his mind. The will is merged with his will. That's where victory takes place. We're getting some help on this subject as to how these things work. I came across this from um, a book called Healing the Broken Brain by Eldon Chalmers. Brain scientists have discovered that any thought or action that is often repeated is actually building little boutons on the sending ends of certain nerve fibers. Boutons are tiny enlargements on axons that secrete various chemicals that help stimulate the next cell to send the message on down the line. Each repeated thought or action is actually building these little boutons so that the same thought or action becomes easier to repeat the next time. So what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the fact that we repeat certain ways of thinking and it becomes like pathways in the brain. These little boutons connect up with each other, they get larger and larger, and the sparks, the synapses flow across more quickly and easily. And so we, like a dog trail in the grass, we form ruts of thinking in our brain. 
and they work easily that way. Repeated actions produce habits. Habits produce character. Character decides destiny. Pretty basic. Well, if we focus on letting the Lord move in in these pathways in the brain, I just wonder if he creates new Bhutans for us and destroys some old ones. I wonder if God can do that. I think he can. How about you? That God can move in and change some pathways in the brain so that when something comes to our eyes or to our ears, when it normally would come through our brain waves down through our bodily organs, all of a sudden it doesn't happen that way anymore. And now it comes through a different set of pathways and different results happen in our minds and our bodies. Now that takes a miracle, as best I can tell. And it takes a miracle in the mind that I can't touch and no scientist can touch. They can tell us how it works but they can't tell us how to change what's up there very well. It isn't going to help by just willpower alone. If the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong, and the thoughts and feelings make up the moral character. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 310. So can we say something to this, like this to God? Lord, I cannot keep from doing this, saying this, thinking this. I choose not to do it, to say it, or think it. Now, Lord, move into my life and make that a reality. That's as simple, as basic as I think we need to be. Let's not get overcomplicated here. Lord, I can't stop thinking, saying, and doing what makes me very unhappy. But Lord, I give you the permission. I choose at this point to change the way my mind thinks, to change my life. I choose to let you have it. The temptation that comes from the devil is going to lose its power if we're willing to let that happen. Well, that's the third point, folks. The will. The will. Remember the three now? God is on our side. God is on our side. He is there for us. Even when we stumble and fall flat on our faces a hundred times, he's there for us. Number two, don't let yourself drift. Just fight drift like anything that you've... The worst enemy you've got, because it is your worst enemy. Fight drifting. Just say, no, I will not let myself coast. If I feel myself coasting, I need to go back to square one and we re-examine some things. And then number three, energize the will and receive the power of God. That's where victory will take place. It will not take place by any methods available to human beings in and of themselves. It'll take place by the miracle-working power of God. And I came across two other statements and I'll finish up with them. Uh, individuals who have expressed it this way. Here, besetting sins are overcome. Evil thoughts are not allowed in the mind. Evil habits are purged from the soul temple. The tendencies which have been biased in a wrong direction are turned in a right direction. Wrong dispositions and feelings are changed. New principles of actions are supplied and there is born a new creature in Christ Jesus our Lord. An entire transformation of our character takes place day by day as we consent to say yes to God and no to self. The life of absolute dependence, absolute trust, absolute surrender, which brings entire transformation, is available to us all today. Can we believe that? It's available. It's right there, like that switch in the wall that turns on the power, the power of God. Another individual took the illustration of Jacob wrestling all night by the brook Jabbok 
and uh, the outcome of that, and he says this, one of the greatest miracles the Lord can perform in our behalf is to cripple all our human efforts and make us totally dependent on him. Jacob thought he could win that night just by fighting with the adversary. He thought he could win that battle, and if he could beat that night, he could beat Esau the next day. That's what Jacob was thinking when the Lord had to cripple him. So he knew that there was no power in Jacob to make that happen. The mind of Esau could not be made mellow and soft by an act of Jacob. It would take a miracle of God. And so Jacob had to be crippled so he could be victorious. And that's what he's referring to. Oh Lord, I've made my total surrender. I've laid down all my sins. My idol has been crushed. But I can't keep in victory without supernatural help. You brought me to this place of absolute obedience. Now sustain my commitment supernaturally. Cause me to both will and do of your perfect will. These are not rocket scientist kinds of things, are they? You don't have to have an advanced degree to understand these things. These are things which are very simple, very basic, and we overlook them because we think they're too simple. We've got to have a better technique. Maybe if we meditate more. Maybe we memorize more chapters of the Bible. Maybe if we pray all night. So we try various things when it may be just as simple as saying, Lord, I refuse to let Satan have power in my will. I give it to you. Work the miracle that needs to be done. Change my life. Let me walk with you step by step. I will close down some avenues to Satan that he has reached me before. I will let you have those avenues. You take them and you do what I cannot do. Victory over sin. It is possible by God's power and God's power alone. But we have a will and we must choose. Would you kneel with me in prayer tonight? Father, tonight I pray for every person in this hall as we have gathered together on this Friday evening, the beginning of another Sabbath day with you. Lord, I just pray that we will experience something that we have never experienced in our lives before, and that is complete victory over the sins which have held us in bondage. Lord, we are tired of falling and failing on the same things over and over and wondering why there is no victory and coming to believe that all we can hope for is forgiveness until Jesus comes. Lord, we want more than that. We want, through the gracious power of forgiveness, to realize the power of victory and overcoming. We want not to break our spiritual ankles so regularly. And Lord, we realize we have no power to accomplish that. We have no techniques that will make that happen. But we do have you. And we're going to ask you to do the miracle in our lives that, has not, that we cannot do. And I pray that for every person here tonight that we will see, experience, and then be joyful because that experience is different than it was before, that there is victory in the camp. And then we can give a shout and move on to the battles of the Lord. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your power, your gift, your promises, and your love. Thank you for standing by us. And when we break our ankles, you'll pick us up and you'll heal us. Thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.